Uh, all right, so we are in First Samuel. We have been uh, diving into the Bible through this last uh, five months now, and it's been really enjoyable seeing the stories in context, week in, week out, and uh, I was just, Laura was lamenting to me because I've asked her to preach in July about how hard it is to take a whole book or a section of a book and like preach on it and then like move on. And it's difficult. Like week in, week out, I have to pick one thing to talk about out of chapters and chapters that we're going through. Um, and Okay, two or three sermons I cram into one and make too long. Thanks, Clint. You're right. You're right. No, yeah, that's, that's totally the, the risk week in, week out. I have most like one and a half sermons today, so it'll only be, you know, too long, not way too long. Um, so we are in 1 Samuel, and we've been, we've been walking through book after book, and uh, we just finished up with the, the judges, and the first few chapters of Samuel is about the transition from the type of, uh, of a nation that's ruled by judges and the type that's ruled by the, the king. And so Samuel is a special character who has um, lots of different roles that he plays in the life of Israel. And he is the one who ushers in the age of the kingdom. So um, Samuel grows up. He grows up in the house of Eli, who was the priest um, at Shiloh. And he learned um, about the law. He learned about um, his role as a priest, as an intermediary between people and God. And we see in Samuel, he's, a, he's an archetype of, of Jesus and of Christ, this he, he shows us a bit about who Jesus is. He, he has this role as a prophet where he speaks for God. He hears from God and speaks the truth of God to the people. And he does that time and time again, not just to all the people, but to particular people along the way. So Samuel has this, has this important role as a prophet. He's also a priest. He's trained in the work of the altar and the, um, the Yahweh system of, of uh, bringing sacrifices and worship before God. So he's an intermediary between people and God. Um, he also takes this role as a judge. And a judge was this ancient role over Israel where they were, in, in a sense, Again, an intermediary between them, the people of Israel, and God. And also, as a judge, you are the one who brings justice to the people. Your responsibility is to, um, uh, among the people, when there's disputes over land, when there's disputes over um, food, when there's disputes over, over anything in the land, the judge was the ruler in bringing God's justice to the people. And so... These are all roles that Samuel had that Jesus will then fulfill in their entirety when he comes. And that's how we're reading the Bible. That's, that's what we're doing from beginning to end, is we're looking at the Bible and saying, what does this tell us about who God is, about what he wants from us, and about who Christ is and how to walk in the way of Jesus? So week in, week out, we're just learning a little bit more about what that looks like. And this week, we're going to add kind of the ultimate role to symbolize for the people who God was meant for them to be which is a king. And God is going to tell that story in, in some important ways. And last week we watched the Bible Project video from 1 Samuel. I think if you haven't watched that, go back because I'm going to be referencing some of the story that it touches on. But you have um, the, the people of Israel are kind of, they've taken over the land of Israel. They, they are um, pretty much ruling over the land of Canaan, but there's these tribes of 
different groups that they hadn't driven out who were too strong to drive out or they were too lazy or they didn't listen to God and God left them there as a, as a means of his justice and judgment and also in preparation for Israel's role over Canaan. So what happens is uh, the ark is taken by some of these tribes. It's taken away and this tribe then, beca- so Israel brings out the Ark of the Covenant, which is supposed to symbolize God's presence with them into war, and they treat it like a magic talisman. They treat it like it's, a, like it's some uh, magic thing that if they hold up, then it'll be magically empower their army to win. And God's like, that's not the way I work. You respond to me. You do what I say. You take the Ark where I tell you. You don't use me to get what you want in this world. And that's what they had done. And so the Ark is taken from them. And the people who take them, this tribe then experiences all these plagues. And then the, the Philistines who took it, they're like, you know what? These plagues aren't worth it. And they give the ark back to the Israelites because they don't want the plagues that came with us. And we see, again, this cycle from the judges of apostasy, where they turn away from God. Judgment, where they experience God reminding them that without him they will experience calamity and pain. And then the people repent because they don't like the pain that came from the judgment of God. And then God restores them into a right relationship and he blesses them. This is the cycle of Israel throughout their entire history. Over and over and over again. Apostasy, judgment, repentance, restoration. Okay? And then Samuel's sons, they come along. And like Eli's sons, they're kind of terrible. And Samuel's about to die, and the people say, don't leave us with your awful sons. So they're, they're, they're worried that Samuel's sons are just going to run them into the ground. They've experienced them when, they, when he appointed them as judges. And so the people of Israel demand a king. And you've you got to be wondering, like, what's the difference between a judge and a king if they have some of the same roles and responsibilities? And I'm going to let Samuel speak to that. So if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And Samuel says, this is what's going to happen when I give you a king. Here's the difference. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 11 through 17. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He's going to take your sons, and he's going to appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipments of his chariots. He will take your daughters to work as perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and you will give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and he's going to put them to work. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. Okay, so they have this arrangement where there's a judge who oversees the interrelationships of the tribes. Each of the tribes have their elders, and they kind of act like a, uh, a federal system where together they ensure each other's protection and safety, and there's a judge who mitigates between them, but they're kind of independent states without any sort of over overarching government over the kingdom. And they're like, you know what? We want to be like everybody else because everybody else has a king. They have a strong man. They have somebody who can lead them into battle, who will make them look great among the nations because that's what they're really concerned about is they're a fledgling little nation and they need to pump, pump up their chests. They need to puff out their chests and start to say, hey, look at us. 
we've got what it takes to win battles. We've got what it takes to hold our land. They want some signatory flag-bearing king who will say, this is, this is the person who represents us to the world. And what they're really saying is, God, you're not doing a good enough job. God, we really don't trust you. God, you have this, this way that you've promised to provide for us. You've always provided for us, but it's not good enough. We want something better. This is, you cannot read this without understanding. It's a rejection of God as their king, okay? So this king's going to come along. He's going to build a standing army, um, and they won't be able to resist the king's call to enlist their sons. And so the sons that they bore and were meant to help them work their land and to provide for their families all of a sudden are not theirs anymore. Their sons will be taken from them, and they'll have to work. And in the spring, they'll go battle for three or four or five months, no matter how, how long the battle lasts. They're, they're committed to enlist every single year. Many of them will then be taken as blacksmiths and perfumers and cooks to provide for the army. And so the whole country will all of a sudden revolve around supporting this industrial military complex that gets built up when you have a kingdom. Um, and, and their response is, hey, we know what it's like. We want to be a slave. Make, give us a king so we can be like the other, the other nations. We don't want to be weird. We don't want to be our own thing. We don't want to do this thing God's way. We want to do it the way that the Syrians do it. We want to do it the way that the Phoenicians do it. We want to do it the way the Egyptians do it. They've got a strong man that they can, they can get behind. And so Samuel comes along, and as the judge, he's the one, and as the prophet, he's the one who will anoint, which is set apart by pouring oil on someone's head, and say, this is the person who's set apart to be the king. He will, he will take from God a message and deliver it to the people through this anointing. And who does he call out first? God brings before him Saul. Saul is rich, he's handsome, and he's tall. Pretty good qualifications, right? Like, that's literally, like, why he's chosen. He's rich. He can build an army. He can, he can kind of uh, afford to, uh, he has enough capital to kind of build a federal system. Um, he's handsome, so the people will listen to him. And he's tall, and that, that, that's supposed to say he's a great warrior. That he, he, when he goes in the battle, and he's literally, it says he's a head taller than the next person guy. So everybody else's heads come up to his shoulders. It's like Jake or Andrew, all of a sudden, like they're in charge because they're the tallest, and they can see over the rest of us, you know? Like that's kind of, that's what they were thinking. Um, and so Saul is called to be the king. A perfect strategic decision on paper by Samuel in response to God's leading, and it's for a particular purpose. Why is Saul called? He's called to drive out the Philistines. The Philistines are the Phoenicians, the sea bearers, who were one of the most technologically advanced societies of the Bronze Age, um, the late Bronze Age. And they had literally, they could take whatever land they wanted because they had tons of money, they had lots of people, and they had great weapons. They were one of the earliest uh, kind of um, technologically driven societies. So the Philistines, they'd, they'd live along the sea, and they'd come in, they'd raid, they'd take over land, they'd rape, they'd pillage, they'd take your stuff, and then they'd go back to the sea, go make money off of what they stole from you. That was kind of the way that they did things. Saul is called to free the people from the Philistines. And then Saul doesn't quite work out. Pretty quickly, you see Saul, um, his, the way that he approaches things is as a leader, he's entitled. 
He thinks of himself as above the law, above God's commands, above Samuel even. So Samuel's late for a meeting. He's supposed to show up and offer a sacrifice. Saul gets impatient, and he decides that the king can do whatever he wants, and so he gives the sacrifice, even though that was against God's law. And then he makes this, he makes a bad rule that causes a bunch of people to sin after a battle, and the Amalekites then, like, he he doesn't listen. God says when you take over the Amalekites, Saul disobeys and he takes all the stuff instead of destroying it. And he, he takes it for himself because he thinks he knows better than God. Um, he feels entitled to the spoils of the battle as the king. And although he's wealthy, it doesn't make him, it doesn't, that doesn't make him greedy. But we see in his actions that Saul is greedy, that money and power drive him, that having control drives Saul. And he'd rather have the nice things and the spoils of the war than he would listen to God. And then when Samuel confronts Saul about what he's done, he doubles down on the lie and says, I don't even, I'm not even responsible to Samuel. I'm not responsible to God for what I do. I'm the king. Samuel, Samuel then says, well, you're not the king anymore. And uh, this is the last straw. straw. Saul could not lead. And, and here's, here's why the Bible tells us that Saul couldn't lead. It's because he felt, he felt entitled. He felt entitled to do, it God's, to do it his own way rather than God's way. And he felt like, I'm doing what God wanted. I'm going out to battle. I'm winning these battles. God should just be glad that I'm doing his bidding, and he shouldn't ask me to do it his way. He felt entitled to do it his own way. He was arrogant enough to think that he knew better than God, and so when God gave him specific instructions on how to rule, on how to interact with him, on what to do with the spoils of war, what does he do? He flaunts them and says, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm the king. And the real reason that Saul is removed as king is that when he's confronted by God's representative, the judge, and when he brings, when Samuel brings truth and invites Saul to be transformed by the hardship of this character building. Uh, when, when you're called out in your sin, it, it forces you, you either have to run away from God or you have to run to God. There's no other option. And Saul's response is, I'm going to run away. I'm going to double down. He doesn't have any contrition. And then he spends the rest of his life fighting to keep his crown and fighting to keep his kingdom. So, God says, I've got to choose somebody else. Saul's not working out. And uh, this, is what, this is what Samuel says to Saul. Verse, chapter 13, verse 13 of 1 Samuel. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your sh- kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. This kind of kingdom that God is making with the Israelites is meant to be different than the kingdoms of the world. It's not meant to be about brute strength. It's not a fight of seven families to establish themselves over the Iron Throne. This is not... A kingdom that looks like one that's built on money and power and strength. This is a different kind of kingdom. And so God needs a different kind of ruler. And God, I I think God let Saul be leader just to prove to them that if they do it on their own, this is the result. 
You're going to be embarrassed. It's a, it's a deep embarrassment to choose badly a ruler and then have to kick him out. This is part of, part of what our country is dealing with right now is we're saying, how do, how do we deal with the embarrassment of our decisions? And, and at, th- at that time, this was a true embarrassment because God had chosen a king and the king didn't work out, so now they have to get rid of him and they have to have a civil war to deal with Saul. But this kind of kingdom that God is making is a different kind of kingdom where instead of us being the king and the people obeying us, God is the king. The king is an under-shepherd who listens to God and does what God says. He's not God himself like the, like the cultic rituals of the people around them. They believed that the king was a representative of God in that he was God himself and he could do whatever he wanted. But the kind of king that comes with Yahweh is someone who is responsible to God for all of his decisions, to listen, to listen and do things God's way. So instead of owning the people and owning the land— the king of Israel was meant to be a steward, one who was responsible to care for the things that was entrusted to him. And so to, now we have today's story. We're on to king number two, and instead of rich, tall, and handsome, there's a different set of criteria in this one, and it's one who's after God's own heart. So if you would, go to First Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. And the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? I've already rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So Samuel's worried that the word's going to get out, that he's anointing other kings, and Saul's going to kill him. That's probably like a legitimate concern. If you have a king and you're anointing extra kings, people get mad, so you got to kind of do it under the radar. And uh, so he says, hey, take take a heifer and pretend that it's just a sacrifice, that there's nothing special going on. So Samuel takes with him a heifer to offer a sacrifice with the family of Jesse. Verse 3, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. And you shall anoint for for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? They were a little worried. They had heard about Samuel. They knew that when Samuel showed up, it was probably bad news. Like somebody was in trouble. You've, they've done something wrong, and he's bringing God's judgment. So they're a little worried. And they're like, Do you come peaceably? And he says, Peaceably I've come to sacrifice the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. Go clean yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him, which is the oldest son. And the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. The man looks on the outward appearance, handsome, rich, tall. But the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is out keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent, and he brought him in. Now, he was ruddy. Now, what does ruddy mean? It it literally means he's like fair-skinned, probably like a like a blondish with light skin. We, we don't know the full cultural connotation, but 
That's what that means. He's ready. He has beautiful eyes, and he's handsome. So, you know, he's not tall, but he's handsome. He's got, you know, one out of two. That's not bad. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. David is the youngest son of an unimportant family. Now we know that Saul is highborn. He comes from wealth and he comes from an important family of the tribe of Benjamin. But Jesse is an unimportant member of a smaller tribe in a backwater kind of town like Bethlehem. David is the youngest of eight sons, which means he has exactly zero birthright. Like there's nothing he's going to get when his father dies. He's going to either have to go find some new land or he's going to work for his oldest brother. That's the options he has. He's even the one who belongs with the sheep. He's treated like a servant. He's treated like one who doesn't belong as a part of the family. Now, if, if somebody calls a family meeting with the, with the priest over all the land and you don't get invited, that tells you something, right? Like David was like an afterthought, the baby of the family. Like my youngest brothers and sisters always are saying that they get left out of stuff. And it's like, we didn't leave you out, we just forgot. Like it's not... Like, we love you, like, in a, in a way, but we don't think about you. And, and that's, that's what David has going on here. He's, he's, he's an overlooked, forgotten, unimportant person in the world. And this is who God chose. Why did God choose him? Well, we know that it's because David is a man after God's own heart. And uh, you've, you've probably heard somebody preach on David at some point in your life, is my bet, at least in... Uh, Sunday school or maybe as an adult and pastors and commentators they have a lot to say about what it means to be a man after God's own heart um, there's there's just a lot of things uh, some some will say that it means that he wanted what God wanted and I think that that's true like at, at its essence there's like he he cared about what God cared about and that's what it meant to be a man after God's own heart but I, I'm not sure it captures the phrase that, or the essence of the leader that God was looking for when we're talking about the king of Israel. And I think that this, this whole book of 1 Samuel is really about comparing David and Saul. And there's supposed to be an answer that we come to when we look at these two leaders about what things God likes and what things God doesn't like. And so I want to I dive into those differences between Saul and David because I think it'll tell us a lot about what God wants and the types of leaders that God is looking for. Okay, So you have David. He's got... He's got some really natural gifts. You, if you've read the stories of David, you know that he's, he's brave, like he's courageous. He literally like kills bears and lions with his, with his bear hands. Not his bear hands, but his bear hands. And, and he kills Philistines by the truckloads. Like he, he just, he'll, he'll route a whole village on his own. He's just a, He's just a B.A. warrior. Like, he just, he dives in, and nobody's going to mess with David. He's brave. David has a deep sense of justice. He's, he's got a deep sense of loyalty, even to Saul. So Saul, he finds out that David is the anointed of the Lord, and what does he try to do? He literally spends the rest of the book trying to kill David. He's obsessed in a Shakespearean way with killing David so that he can be unencumbered by this upcoming anointed leader who is, 
handsome and brave and has a deep sense of justice. But David has such a sense of loyalty to Saul that even when he has three distinct opportunities in close proximity to kill Saul, he doesn't because he knows that that's not what he's supposed to do. David, time and time again, takes on the role of the Savior, the one who's going to bring and set things the way that they should be. He jumps into battle. When he, when he hears, I don't want to step on Holly's toes for next week, but when he hears Goliath shouting out that this Yahweh must not be a great God because his people are so weak and fearful, David says, nuh that's not right. And he steps out, and he steps into battle because he has a deep sense that that is unjust to call out God in that way. David's confident. He's confident that God is going to come through for him. He has, he has faith in God. He's sure of his promises, and he's fearless because of his faith. He's not fearless because of his confidence in himself. He's fearless because he knows God will go before him. And I think that these traits come from God. All these traits are true of Christ as well. And so when we're looking at David, he's meant to be like Samuel, an archetype of Christ, but a fulfillment of this kingly vision of who Christ will be. And this story is about that. That's what we're doing. We're trying to understand what kind of Messiah Jesus was, what kind of king Jesus is. And so we read this story to try to understand that. But the story of Samuel wants to make a different point about David. It's not the inherent traits of David or Saul that make them good leaders. It's not about how good they were strategists or how good they were at developing leaders. It's, it's not because they're handsome or ruddy or rich or poor or highborn or the youngest of eight kids or short or tall. The writers, the writer of this book, he wants to contrast the two ways that David and Saul respond to authority and respond to criticism and the way that they handle power because that's the difference between David and Saul is in those three things, how they respond to authority, how they respond to criticism, and the way that they handle power because that will reveal their true nature, their true character. So let's, let's look at it. Saul doesn't listen to the commands and the authority of God. He flaunts them and does whatever he wants. Saul, he sends weaker, young, small boys to battle for him rather than stepping in. He cowers in his tents, surrounded by the guards, thinking that he's above battle. He's above the dirty work of going to war. Saul doesn't listen to the voice of God's anointed priest in Samuel. He doesn't listen to God's prophet. He doesn't listen to God's judge. He does things the way he wants. Saul, when he's confronted with criticism from his actions, he lies and he doubled down and he doesn't repent, and then he does the same thing again two chapters later. You're starting to get a picture of the kind of guy Saul is. Saul thinks of himself as entitled, entitled to the goods that he wins from battle, and even when God is the one who provides the victory in the war, he takes credit for what God does. This is the type of leader Saul is. Saul thinks that he shouldn't have to wait on God, he shouldn't have to wait on Samuel, and that he's going to do things his own way, in his own power. The rules don't apply for him. So this is Saul, and what the writer of Samuel is saying is that whatever Saul is, don't be like Saul, okay? Whatever Saul does, that's not the stuff I want. I have a different picture for you, and it's David. And here's how David responds to some of those same things. David trusts in God's timing. He trusts that God will remove Saul at the right time and that he'll be elevated to king when it's the right time. 
Instead of usurping the power of Saul, he trusts in God's timing. And even when Saul tries to kill him, he responds with mercy. Even when Saul is literally in the cave, going to the bathroom, and David is standing behind him in the dark, and Saul is out loud saying how he's going to kill David, David does not take his life. Be like David. David trusts in the promises of God that God will come through in the fights with the, the Philistines, with the battles he's going to face as a king, when he's on the run from Saul among the Moabites. He trusts God and he leans into God's character. He knows and he's seen God come through and he puts his faith in God. David, when he comes to the priests at Nob, he honors them and they invite him in. When Saul comes along, who, who read that part in their Bible app this week? about, about um, Saul at the, at the priest of Nob. What does he do? He kills him because they helped David. Across the whole book, it's this contrast between David and Saul, what they do. When David is confronted later, David's not perfect, right? David is a flawed character. There's a lot of tragic things about David's life. But in, in a turnaround at the end of, uh, at the middle of 2 Samuel, what happens? David is confronted by God's priest, by God's prophet. And what happens? David repents. David tears his clothes and tries to restore things to justice because he cares about what God wants. And so what we see in contrast, we see what it means for David to have a heart after God because Saul didn't. Here's what it means to be a man after God's own heart. First is he submits to the authority of God and his word. David does this time and again. He doesn't consider himself the ultimate authority over all things. I'm not going to ask you guys to raise your hand, but I'm, I'm wondering how many of you feel like you are the ultimate authority over your life. How many of you live as if there's no one who's in charge of you and that anytime you choose, you can do what you want anytime you want because you're in charge of your life. It's really easy to fall into that. Uh, we, we jokingly say, I do what I want. <laughs> like, like that's, that's one of those, like, it's, you know, you do you, you, you uh, do what you want. Um, like, like there's, there's this sense in our, in our culture that there's no authority over me. Even my, even my um, government has no authority over me. I submit to the laws because I want society to work well, but I'm my own boss. I'm my own king. But David submits himself to authority and to the word and the commands of God. Second thing we see in David that shows he has a heart after God is he's humble, he's unassuming, he doesn't feel entitled, and he sees himself as a servant. Under this big title of humility, do you guys realize that that's the way that God reveals himself most distinctly in humanity as, as a suffering, humble servant? The God King of the universe showed us what it's like to be like him. Even with all the power over all things, he chooses to humble himself to take on these human bodies and then to humble himself to death, even death naked on a stick outside of Jerusalem. And so if we want to be the kind of leader, the kind of person who's after God's own heart, humility has to be the center of our character. And of course, like, this whole week I've just been battling in my own heart about, like, where, where does pride and humility show up in my life? Is, is my character look like this? And I, I, hope, I hope you're starting to think about that, too. 
The third thing we see that shows that David has a heart after God is this, that he has faith in God's faithfulness. He has confidence that God is going to come through. And that's what allows him to be humble. He can be humble because he doesn't have to put himself in a position of honor because he trusts that God will lift him to a position of honor. He doesn't have to do it on his own. He can submit to the authority of God because he has faith that God is good and that God is faithful and that God is just, and he doesn't need to make those things happen. God is going to do it for him. So I think the, the undergirding, like, this is what it's like to be like Christ, and this is what it's like to have a heart after God, is to trust God with everything that we have, because he's the one who has to come through for us for his promises. Saul is a tragic figure, and he's removed for one reason. It's his pride. His pride leads him to a sense of entitlement, to arrogance that he's above the law and above God's prophetic words. His pride led him to this murderous rage towards David, towards jealousy. His pride led him to sin, to lie when he was confronted. His pride led him to this ultimate death while he was trying to kill David to maintain his place on the throne. His pride literally kills him. If you can't, like this story is about pride kills and God destroys the proud, but he gives grace and he honors the humble. If you want a big idea of the book of 1 Samuel, that's the story. God brings low the proud and he lifts up the humble. God destroys the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's what we're talking about. And although David is a deeply fod character, he can be impulsive, he can indulge himself physically and sexually, and as an as a older adult, he doesn't pursue justice out of loyalty to his kids, and it leads to this awful civil war. But in spite of all that, we see in David the fingerprints of the Lion of Judah, the good and powerful, mighty Messiah King who was to come, the one who will come from the lineage of David, who will be born the King of the Jews, Jesus, who is humble and contrite, who's slow to anger and abounding in love, who loves justice and trusts God and walks in the power of the Spirit. I, I just love verse 13 when it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Like that's a picture of this is what it looks like to be the kind of person who has God's heart. Is God's Spirit is literally rushing through you and in you and from you. And Jesus was that same way. David is like super important to the story of Israel. He's this godly, courageous, good, just king that ushers in the golden age of Israel. He brings peace internally and externally. He gathers the wealth needed to build Jerusalem and the temple. He unites the tribes. He drives out the Philistines. He gives them a taste, just a tiny taste of the shalom of God's kingdom. This thing that they've been hoping for from the beginning, that God would give them a land and make them a people that would be a blessing to all nations, they were starting to see it in David's kingdom. It was coming to life through David. And what God wants us to see in the story is that the kingdom of God comes when humble leaders trust him and submit themselves to him. The story is about like the kingdom of God comes to life when people take on the character of God. When they put their confidence in God, they humble themselves before him, and they submit themselves to his rule and reign in their lives. 
he, he's even more important than just giving them a taste of this kingdom thing, but he's also, anytime Jews think after 1000 AD about this, this idea of a Messiah, the one who would come to restore them, who, the one, the Christ that, they would only think about King David because they knew that it would be in the line of King David, and they knew that David was the one who had, who had done the thing that they had hoped for, who had established them as a kingdom that was powerful and rich and was everything that they had hoped to be. They look back on that as the golden age, just like whatever Whatever people imagine the golden age of America to be, well, I don't, you know, everybody has their like little vision of this, whether it's Camelot or the 50s or the 40s or whatever those things are that you kind of imagine was the greatness of America. Israel thought of this age as the golden age of Israel. It was the establishment of the unified kingdom under the king, and it comes from walking in the way of God. They, the people in the first century were looking for someone like David. They were hoping that there would be, they would raise up this flawed human character um, and, and who would then usher in this golden age of Jewish power and wealth and shalom. And instead, Jesus is a lot more like David than even David was. This new king that comes in Jesus is, he's going to reign forever. He's fully God and he's fully man. And I just love this. He's the son of Yahweh. Like he's the son of the one true king. And he's also the son of David, the, fa- the failed kingdom. Like he, he, he in, is a part of both lineages of, of the line of Judah and the line of Yahweh. He's the only one who can reign over both kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth, because he comes from both lines. Jesus is the only one who's able to take his rightful place on the throne of David at the right hand of Yahweh in the same time. And I, I really want to get into this today, um, not just because I want to talk about the ancient kingdom of Israel, which is fun. Like, I, I like the history. I like diving into the story. But there's been this tension among the, the Jesus people, the Jesus movement for 2,000 years about how do we rule each other how do we lead this movement that's been kind of been building for 2,000 years? Um, and and there's, I think that there's a fight between these two visions of, the, of how the kingdom should work. There's, there's a group of people who are saying we want to be like the judges. We want, we want to have um, a simple, um, non-structured authority over us that comes from mutual submission to one another. And there's a group of people who love authority and have been trying to establish an authoritarian kingdom of Jesus people. And there's been this literally a a battle from the beginning over what kind of a movement are we going to be? Are we we going to trust that God is our king? Are we going to anoint a king over this kingdom movement that's happening in the world? You see examples of both throughout history. In, in modern times, you have the Catholic and the Episcopal models of leadership with their hierarchies of elders and bishops and arch, archbishops and national archbishops and popes and patriarchs. There's these tight systems, and, and you, have, you have these, uh, these silos of, of authority from the pope all the way down to the rector at the local level. There's this system. And then you also have these radical examples of, uh, of autonomy and of independent churches with no authority over them at all. You, you also have these like radical forms of like democratic congregationalism. 
Um, you have like spiritualized congregationalism, like the Anabaptists, the Quaker Friends, the Brethren. Um, so, so like there's there's these there's these ways that we've been kind of saying, how do we lead, and how do we lead well in light of this thing that we're trying to do? We have an important kingdom mission that we're all a part of that we talk about week in week out. But like, what? How do we form something that works for us? And and as Redemption Hill, we're 18 months old. We've been growing real steadily, and we're at a point where um, we got to kind of figure out how this thing works. Um, basically, it's just been like me and a group of people who lead the different ministries, we get together and we talk about stuff. And for the most part, they just kind of empower me to make decisions. And we're at a point where we need to kind of figure out what does it look like to have some sense of a structure to this nebulous thing we've been calling the Redemption Hill community. Um, I think that the way that we organize ourselves as these little mini churches, um, it's important. But no matter what you do, whether you go for an authoritarian kind of model that's very rigid roles and structures, or you go for a little bit more of a nebulous, autonomous kind of model, neither model is going to save you from a bad leader. If you have a bad leader, a bad set of leaders, they can act badly in whatever situation you give them. Okay? And so, like, I, th- I want to fo- focus less on the types and the structures of what we're doing. Now, I, I think that there are, like, bad structures that, like, are just patently not biblical. Um, and one of those is that, like, you, you don't see in the Bible, there's, there's no form of democratic governance in the Bible. Like, it just doesn't show up. It's, it's a uniquely Western and, and mostly American and Baptist and Anabaptist. Like, there's this group that have, like, said that democracy is our highest value, and so it's how we're going to rule our churches. And fundamentally, that's just not a biblical way of doing things. And so we got to kind of ask, okay, like that's the way we make decisions in the world, right? Whoever has the most money, they nominate people, <laughs> and, and then we elect them, right? Isn't that the way that democracy works? Um, but we, we, we do need to, you know, no matter what kind of ecclesiology, it's not going to fix the type of leader that we are. You can't change how tall you are or how likable you are for the most part. Um, You can't change if you're born into a respectable family or if you come from wealth. You can't change how pretty or how handsome you are, although that's changing with modern technology. There's opportunities. Um, You you can't change if you're a man or a woman. And in this world, those are going to be the deciding factors for who leads, right? Those are, that's that's how you decide who leads. You look at any organization, it's going to be Someone who's incredibly educated, probably good-looking, and probably tall, and probably a man. That's it. Like, you look around, you can pick the executive track, put them in there, and eventually they're going to lead the company. That's, that's the way that our world works. But ultimately, none of those things have any bearing on the type, the type of character that leaders inhabit, who you truly are. And so we need to look at the heart of God and watch leadership that we see in Christ, and then we seek out for ourselves those types of leaders that we want to follow. And fortunately, you can change your character. You can't change any external things, but you can change your true nature on the inside because God transforms it as we walk in the way of Jesus. Those three things that we see in David, how he followed after God's own heart, how he was submitted to God, he was humble and he trusted God, 
those are the essential ways that we grow in character and into Christ-likeness now. Did you see that? Great character for leadership isn't something special that's a natural-born gift, but the character of a leader is something that God develops over time. And you all have places where you lead and where you're responsible for things, and God doesn't want us to just have great character for our king or our leader or our president. He wants everybody to enter into this way of Jesus and submit themselves to God's authority and be humble and trust God. And uh, we're getting close to the end here, I promise. We're getting real close. Last page. My battery's good, though, so it's not going to run out today. Sorry, guys. Um, so, so here's what I want to talk about at the end here is that uh, we, we're in a process of kind of determining, like, what we're going to do. And we're, our, our plan right now is that um, alongside the leadership community that we've built, I'm going to be calling two or three people and inviting them to consider being an elder as a part of an elder team that is in charge before God and before you for this congregation. And um, first of all, I want you to be thinking about and looking around and asking, who has God given this, this kind of character? Who looks like David? Who looks like Christ? Who is humble? Who has submitted themselves to God? Who really trusts God? Because if we can find leaders that inhabit those three character virtues— and then find leaders with gifts as apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers that have that kind of character, we're going to do, we're going to do all right, I think, as a community. We're going to make it because those are the types of leaders who can lead for the long term and usher in a little taste of God's kingdom age in this little community that we have. I've been thinking a lot this week, like, as as we're going through this elder process, it's kind of assumed that because I'm the pastor, I'm going to be one of those elders, and I'm going to be the one who will kind of pull that team together. But I've been asking myself, like, does this, do I look like this? Do, have I, do I continue to grow in my submitting to God's authority? Um, I think so. I was, I did not have character as a young man, and I'm, I'm developing that muscle day in and day out as I grow. I'm learning to humble myself, but I'm not humble. Um, most of you have known me and seen me for a lot of years, and, and you know that like that's an area where God is continuing to, to bring me to task and bring Samuels into my life to call me out in these areas. But I, I don't want you to just be thinking about, well, well, I'm not like an elder kind of material, so I'm not, I don't need to become these things. I really, I want you to think like God's plan is to equip all of us to look like Christ so that we can be a part of bringing his kingdom to the world. And we've, we talk a lot about church planning. We talk a lot about multiplying this thing that we're doing. And that starts with all of us becoming more like Christ, inhabiting these character traits so that we have leadership to offer, so we can show others how to walk in the way of Jesus. And I, I want to I be challenging you what does it look like for you over the next five or ten years to become the kind of person who could help lead a congregation? I think all of you have it within you to grow into Christ-likeness in such a way that God could use your gifts to lead well in a, in a community group, in one of our ministries, in one of our outreaches, in a church plant 
community that we send out, God could use you, but he wants to and only can use you if you develop these traits. He's not done with you yet, okay? He's not happy with you just showing up and giving a little bit of money and serving sometimes. That's nice. That's a good start, but he, he has plans for you. He's equipped you with gifts that only come alive when God's spirit starts to flow through you and have complete control over you. One of the things, I love Alan Hirsch, and he says this. He, he says, I would strongly argue that the gifts of Ephesians 4, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, is in actual fact a part of the DNA of all God's people and in the very fabric of what it means to be church. In other words, it's latent. It, like, needs to come alive in us. Recognizing this is critical to unlocking the real power of the Pauline teaching and in such a way the extension of the New Testament teaching of the priesthood and the ministry of all God's people. There is no special priesthood anymore. You guys are meant to be God's priests, a royal nation who, intermediate, who intermediates between the world and God. And all of us need to come to life in the Spirit and see that happen. And it starts with humility. So let's pray for that right now. Lord God, thank you for the story of David and all that he teaches us about you and about what you're doing and about how you are working in this world. Lord God, I see in him some of the things you've been developing in me and I also see in him some things that I, I have not given you room in my life for. Lord God, let me and let all of us respond well when you call us out from our sin and our pride and our arrogance and our entitlement. Lord God, let each of us be deeply yielded and submitted completely to you and your authority. Lord God, above all, may we humbly walk with you, spend our lives learning to be like Jesus and to be like David and to be men and women who are after your heart. Lord God, have your way here at Redemption Hill as it is in heaven. Amen.